0: Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy folks, she's Sarah Bannister,
1: and he's Davis Leong, and we're your Temporary
0: Temporary Experts. Experts. Today's episode is about vaccines, because they're, they're in the news. news. After a year of COVID upending our lives, the light is at the end of the tunnel as vaccine programs across the world ramp up to full speed.
1: So we thought we'd take a look back at vaccines through history, how they work, and what makes the COVID vaccine so significant. But Davis, you uh, you weren't too keen on talking about the vaccine science were you.
0: No, I, I, yeah, I was, I was a little resistant to this topic. And I think I'd said a couple of times how much I didn't really want to talk about COVID on the podcast, just, just because it's been, it's such a tired topic. I felt um so many people have talked, like there are entire podcasts that are in just solely based around COVID, COVID science, statistics, like all over the map. And I just felt like after a year of talking about it, people would be really, really sick of it. But you, you cannot escape the vaccine stuff in the news right now, can you? Like, It's everywhere. And as uh, you know, for you and me, as people who like communicate science a lot in our lives, both professionally and personally, like it's been something that we've been talking about with with everyone, right? Like, or I've been getting getting questions about it from people, or people asking me, even like, how do you talk about this with someone? Like, how do you defend against these types of arguments and things like that?
1: Yeah. And it, it comes up a lot in life of people who haven't, people who don't have the science background. You know, like if, if the last time you took a science class was high school, then the last time you talked about cells and viruses was, you know, potentially tenth, eleventh grade. So there's a lot of confusion around how the vaccine actually works, which is it breeds a lot of fear, especially with the pace of the COVID vaccines. So I uh I was a little insistent with Davis that we uh that we that we do this topic.
0: You know, and it's it's interesting as well you, you sort of bring out that like we don't think about we don't have to think about getting a vaccine very often or or oh sorry you're thinking about sorry you're sort of saying like we don't have to think about many of us haven't thought about cell biology since we were teenagers um, if we took biology at all or we're interested in the sciences as as adult learners but I often find it that even that's true about getting a vaccine like most of the prescribed vaccinations these days we get as kids and then you don't really think about it again you know if you're Uh, fortunate enough to travel the world, you might have to get certain types of vaccines to go certain places just to prevent certain illnesses. But it's not something that we're we're approached with in our day-to-day lives. And even to the point with every so often with even with novel diseases or new vaccines, it's not something that we're very often considering like, oh, do I need to go and get this new vaccine? And so then you have on top of a brand new vaccine that you have to choose. But the reason that we have this new vaccine is because we, you know, our world has been sort of crippled by this novel disease, right? And, you know, and even to the point where that so many of those vaccines, like when you think about like, oh, well, you get vaccinated against like, you don't even really get vaccinated against the measles as a kid because measles, measles has been eradicated. But you get vaccinated against mumps and whooping cough and, you know, chickenpox is more, the vaccine's more prominent today um, for kids than it was like when, like for kids around my age when I was a kid back then it was still kind of the 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 chicken pox party
2: yeah
0: and and so some of these ones we really think about like oh you don't um I misspoke as well it's not measles that was eliminated
1: was it It smallpox smallpox. yeah Um, measles is has been hit hard but it still exists in uh, low numbers.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And yeah, so we don't think a lot about some of these vaccines or we think about like, oh, well, we established the science behind these vaccines decades and decades ago, which is true. But there's a lot of history that it took to even get us to the point where we understood enough about disease that we could even understand how a vaccine would work or why it would be effective. The earliest really recorded not evidence of a vaccine but the evidence of of human medicine trying to utilize infection to prevent against infection kind of goes back to like the 1600s and it's this idea they called it variolation is what we sort of later termed it as and so it was innovated in sort of India and China in the 1600s and what it would involve a lot of the times would be like if you Sarah caught a mild case of the disease say you caught a mild case of measles, right? And everybody knows, would know measles to be a killer, uh, but your case would be mild and that would be recognized because lots of people would be getting measles at these times. And we would take either some of the scar tissue from your measles uh, or like we would put ourselves in the same room as you thinking that if we catch it from you, we'll catch a mild case and we won't die. But it would have been well established at that point that if you had measles and survived, you were way less likely to get measles and, and get seriously ill again.
1: The same idea behind those chickenpox parties, right? Chickenpox is when you want to get when you're young, because typically people don't have negative, as bad of a reaction or as bad of a case of chickenpox when they're young. But if you get it when you're older, the risk of complications and leading into things like shingles can be a lot uh, higher. So you you do it then. So same idea, you take a mild case and be like, maybe, maybe this will be milder. And then I can get it in a more of a controlled setting as opposed to just it happening to you whenever it happens to you.
0: Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing, right, when you think about that though, that period of time, like the 1600s, because it wasn't really until when sort of like when that shift in our thinking really occurred was like in the 1800s, right, Sarah? You know, because you've got kind of this 1600s understanding. We don't, we don't, there's no acceptance to this point of like of germ theory. Like to this point, we're still thinking of like spontaneous, uh, what's the word I'm looking for?
1: Yeah, generation?
0: <laughs> so I've heard the word bio, like, I, I remember when I learned it in school, it was biogenesis. Mm-hmm. That was sort of how we talked about it. And that was this idea that life could, you know, so like, it came from about from the observation of like, if I leave a piece of meat out on the windowsill, and I come back a week later, and it's all rotted, there's a bunch of flies around it. Well, the flies must have come from the meat. Um, because that's all I've been able to observe. You know, before video cameras, I don't know that a fly has to land on it, lay more, lay eggs into the rotting meat. And yeah. then the eggs are, are birthed into larvae and then they become flies. But, you you know, you can't observe that. So for the longest time, we've just <laughs> thought, ah, well, the life has come out of nowhere. And it took a really, really long time to, to definitively prove to the science community that, that, that life couldn't generate itself that way.
1: Yeah, it took it took a long time for someone to be like, "What if I cover it with some glass?" They covered it with like a a, a lid of glass, basically, and then no life formed. And they were like, "Huh, ah, clue."
0: It's a, it was it was an idea. Really, it was the it was really the science about around germ theory specifically, and really showing that it was microbes that were causing this type of stuff was really influenced by Pasteur. And if you are a beer or wine drinker, you were probably familiar with with the, the name Pasteur, or you might have, if you are around science, you've heard this name before for sure. And yeah, like you said, his experiment was he would take, he had designed a special type of flask, um, and it was basically sealed to the air by trailing the piece of molten glass as you were blowing it off. You created a little S-bend, and it would catch any debris or, or microbes, as Pasteur had postulated would try to get into the liquid in the vessel so what he did was he took beef broth so soup essentially and boiled it to sterilize it so he proved that first of all he demonstrated that you could sterilize something by boiling which obviously we've known for a while he used to boil drinking water and and things like that and then he would set up a flask with this swan neck this s-bend that wouldn't that would be closed to the environment and then he would set up another one and he would boil both and he would crack one of them open afterwards, and then he would. Sh- and then a week later, you'd come in. The beef broth would be all cloudy, and there'd be all these microbes in, it, and it would smell really bad. And the other broth in the non-cracked neck vessel would be fine.
1: I legit didn't know that was Pasteur. I knew the story, oh, really, but I hadn't connected it to uh to Pasteur. That's a uh... How appropriate.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Pasture. And so the reason why I bring up like beer drinking and stuff. So I used to work as a, in a brewery and in quality control. And this was actually one of the things that we monitored. So in a brewery, especially for beer, you have these massive machines. It's, you know, it's several yards long, like, you know, and it, it is essentially like, you think about um, like an automated car wash uh, and you, your car kind of, you go on this little track and you go through and you get sprayed with water and soap and you get cleaned, right? Except you're getting sprayed with water still, but it's hot water and it's not so much about cleaning, but it's about heating up the interior, the contents of whatever's going through to a certain temperature. So they do this with beer. They actually do it with milk as well. I don't know if you've ever heard that like, even though milk will curdle past its expiration date, it won't make you sick. If it's been pasteurized, because microbes won't grow in it, it mm-hmm. curdles because of some of the other reactions of uh of the of the things that are in your milk,
1: like milk proteins and stuff. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Uh, casein protein. I was trying to, I was fumbling for it in my brain there. Uh, but basically, with pasteurization, is like you heat something up to the point where it kills the microbes in it, and it just improves its shelf life. So that's just it doesn't really have a lot to do with vaccines. But Pasteur he did do a lot of work in vaccines following his work on gene, germ theory.
1: So from so Pasteur is a really a uh, big name, of course, in, in germ theory. In and germ they, theory, yeah. yeah. Um, but a really big name in vaccines is Hillman, who is Maurice Hilleman, who has in some places been called the greatest biologist or scientist of the 20th century. With some saying he, he might even be the greatest scientist who ever lived. Uh, he was involved in helping or creating vaccines for. Chickenpox, adenovirus, measles, mump, and rubella, so the MMR vaccine that a lot of us uh, have, Japanese encephalitis, mendococcus, uh, hepatitis A and B, pneumococcus, hemophilus imph- influenza type B, uh, and over 40 in total. So,
0: I don't eight, say these names a lot. Out of, 8 out of 10 ain't bad. That was pretty good.
1: Oh great. <laughs> all right. I, I studied plants so I didn't do a lot of human bio. Um, you should be
0: really good at all the Latin names then. <laughs> there's Fine. no defense fair point <laughs> <laughs>
1: um yeah so so uh hilleman was involved in helping to make over 40 vaccines through his time uh, as a scientist which is wild uh that's so many he, uh the there's estimates that his work has saved about 8 million lives per year and that we live approximately 30 years longer because of him okay. and the work that he did so yeah so one of the first ones he worked on uh was developing where he discovered that chlamydia was bacterial and not viral, because they were trying to find a vaccine for chlamydia, and he was like, it's a bacteria, you can just give antibiotics. And he worked on uh, a vaccine for Japanese encephalitis, which causes brain swelling and is really deadly. He was asked by the army to develop that one. So one of his first really big ones that that we know that we would think of would be for mumps, which is not typically deadly, but it makes your face all swell up, and you get kind of lumpy with the mumps. So the story goes that in 1963, his young daughter woke up in the middle of the night and came to her dad saying she doesn't feel well. And he saw her and, like, looked it up in his big book of illness and was like, ah, you have the mumps. So <laughs> yes. he, like, he, like...
0: <laughs> the, the doctor's best friend, the, the good old, the big book of illness.
1: <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so he looked up in the big book of illness, found out it was mumps, and then uh, sent her daughter sent his daughter back to bed, drove to his lab, got a swab, came back, swabbed his daughter, so that he could have, like, a good sample of the mumps virus to work with. You know, if opportunity knocks, if your daughter gets the mumps, make some science out of it. Uh, and then what he did was he used a method that is actually used to make a lot of vaccines. Now, Davis, have you ever, when you get a vaccine, has anyone ever said, are you allergic to eggs?
0: I mean, it it doesn't spring to mind, but I'm also not allergic to eggs, so it wouldn't really, it wouldn't really make a particular impression but it is something that you hear a lot about about vaccines or if you go on like the who's vaccine portal site they sort of for each one in the description will be like ingredients it does not contain and for like moderna and pfizer it sort of it does say eggs and that would be something that would be curious potentially
1: Uh, and so that
0: understand why yes please
1: (laughs) (laughs) well that's why i'm here so the reason that you may be asked, "Are you allergic to eggs?" when you get a vaccine is because of the way that they grow viruses for the type of vi- or for the uh for the type of vaccine where they're putting a weakened strain of the actual virus inside of you, which is what the mumps and uh, measles vaccines. What they are.
0: Sometimes we use the word attenuated, yes. to describe a vaccine that's been weakened uh, for for the for vaccination purposes.
1: Yes, and this attenuation, this weakening, is you uh occurs in chicken eggs. So, uh what uh
0: would hill what- no now sorry. Does it is it something that can occur only
1: in chicken eggs
0: or or is this something more because of the accessibility of chicken eggs? A hen will lay an egg a day pretty much. Is is that why we've kind of uh, so much of the the methodology has been adapted to to this particular this particular way?
1: I think so. I I can't say for sure. It be something I would have to uh, become more of an expert on. (laughs) But I think also there have been diseases known to jump from birds to humans. Mm -hmm. So, which is important when you're talking about this sort of attenuation, because what they want to do is, uh, and what Hilleman did, uh, he put this virus into a flask with a bunch of chicken embryo cells. And he watched the vials, uh, or the flasks, until there were a bunch of dead cells. And then he took the virus from where the, the biggest clumps of dead cells were and put them in new flasks until they killed... Cells there, and they put them in new flasks. So what they were trying to do was get a virus that was really, really good at killing chicken eggs, because the viruses it slightly mutates as it as it ages. It, it changes little bit by little bit. So by becoming more and more
0: attenuated,
1: atten- becoming more and more specific to chicken eggs mm, uh, to, or to chicken cells, it would become less and less specific to human cells. So uh, Hillman was just had a really, really good knack for being able to find the perfect balance between it being like chickeny enough to not hurt a human if you put it in it, so it was weak enough, but still be humany enough that your immune system can recognize it. Because if it got taken too far into the chicken side of things, and it was put into a human, the human immune system wouldn't see it as a threat and would just kind of like ignore it. But if it's not weakened enough, if it's not attenuated enough, and you put it into a human, it's a stronger virus and you could get sick from it. So this is why they ask if you're allergic to eggs. So now I don't think it's done in flasks. I think it's done directly into the chicken egg itself. Um, and then they often, instead of just weakening the virus, they, they weaken it, they attenuate it in this way, but then they, they kill it so that they're putting the dead virus into your body so your body can still recognize the pieces that it's looking for, which we'll get into in a bit. But so it's looking for the pieces. Uh, but yeah, that's why if you're allergic to eggs, you might have trouble getting a vaccine that's made in this way.
0: And a and a few of them are still uh, like for for COVID specifically, um, and we'll get a little bit further into the into the COVID stuff in a minute. But I think that's a good and just just for as well. Uh, when so when was uh, when was Hillman active then, uh, as a scientist?
1: Uh, Hillman. So he was born in 1919, just after the Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Woo. Um, and he died in 2005. So he. His work with chlamydia was actually during his PhD. when he discovered that. So pretty, pretty strong way to start your PhD. Uh, that was 1941, and then Japanese encephalitis was in the late 1940s, and his work with mumps was uh, 63 to 67. It was the fastest vaccine produced uh, before COVID.
0: So still pretty, so still pretty modern from a certain science perspective, even compared to guys like Jenner and, and Pasteur who yes. are operating in the mid 1800s. But that does kind of tell us, like. Where we've kind of we've gotten to today, uh, and and we've now we've gotten to this place where you know you have these mandatory vaccines when you're when you're a child. Uh, we've seen vaccines eliminate diseases like we were talking about with smallpox, uh, and really, and then and then especially the the proliferation worldwide of vaccination campaigns. Um, obviously, that's something that that people like Bill Gates, for example, has put uh, him and his wife have put a, a ton of effort into. Uh, putting their fortunes behind, improving vaccination efforts in those parts of the world. And and then as well, I think, you know, I think nowadays you can't have a vaccine conversation without a little bit of the anti-vax sentiment coming up into it, uh, especially if you're going to talk about it from a science perspective. And we'll talk a little bit more about anti-vax sentiment related to the COVID vaccine specifically and why some of it's a little bit misplaced, um, especially because like that's where you're starting to see that that sentiment among people who wouldn't call themselves anti-vaxxers for other things. And I think that's, those are the people who maybe want to, that's the conversation that I think is really interesting around the, the COVID vaccines. The whole anti-vaxxer thing, as scientists, <laughs> I think it's pretty obvious where Sarah and I stand on <laughs> it. Um, but it's, I think it's, just to bring it up, it's just, it's interesting to sort of see that the anti-vax sentiment is is not new. Anti-vax sentiment has existed for as long as, it, long as scientists have been trying to innovate vaccines. And it's really interesting, like when these, when these, Illnesses just ran rampant, like when you could catch smallpox and become disabled uh, for for your life just from catching it, or or for polio. Sorry, like you know, like Roosevelt and things like that. When someone came and said, you know, I can give you this shot that I've tested, and you know, uh, and then I can show you the science, and your kids won't get polio. There is this huge incentive to take it, and then, but obviously, there is always been this kind of concern around the safety of it and things like that.
1: I think mm-hmm. The the risk with something like polio was so dramatic and so visible and apparent to people that when someone came along and was like, hey, we can help stop this, then people were pretty on board with it. And same with something like the measles. You know, that was a pretty Mm -hmm. bad one and it killed mostly children. So when, you know, back in the 60s and before before, uh, consent around uh, vaccines was like really developed in the law and the scientists could like just go up to someone and be like, hey, uh, I have this vaccine here's a little bit of information, sign this card, and I will test it on your child. (laughs) We've we've moved a far way away from there.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, like, Jenner's ethics on the first cowpox inoculation, right, would not stand up to scrutiny today.
1: What'd he do, Davis?
0: Well, well, he just he injected the kid. Like, he'd he'd made these observations around, um, you know, milkmaids, specifically in a lot of these villages that would have smallpox outbreaks, and they wouldn't catch smallpox. And cowpox was known... To be a similar disease but it didn't really affect it wasn't as serious it was nearly as serious and he sort of made the logical jump a little bit that well if cowpox gives you a similar disease to smallpox it might inoculate you against against smallpox and and so he ultimately took a local kid and injected them with cowpox. The kid was sick for like nine days. So you think about like the coin flips of history, right? Like obviously infant, mort- infant mortality was really high in those days. And like this kid got sick. Like he got like cowpox, which is like smallpox. It's like a, you know, it's a disease. And the kid could have died probably, presumably. And he sort of, in terms of the coin flips of history, like if this kid had died, like, do we have vaccines today? The way we know them? I mean, I think we would have invented them eventually, but the story might be quite different, but and then ultimately, about 10 days later, after the kid had recovered, he comes back and he injects them full blown with smallpox, which is, you know, we'll talk about how vaccines are our research today. But like you you don't test the efficacy of a vaccine today by giving someone the vaccine and then also trying to give them the disease. They're done through what we call these randomized control trials.
1: Yeah. Thankfully,
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, I mean, that really, like, I think that really, the history of vaccines is not really the topic that we want to focus on. Because, I mean, you even, basically, the history of vaccines has taken a huge leap forward
2: oh, yeah. because of
0: COVID um, in a way that we've never seen before um, with just the technology that we can apply and, and things like that. And obviously, the the kind of the global effort. But, but a little bit, I think we need to talk about, Sarah, what is it that makes a vaccine work and why, you know, how it's different from, you know, if I give you a drug for a bacterial infection, right? Like you were saying with, with Hillman, you know, saying with chlamydia can't be treated with, with the same antivirals because it's not a virus. Um, But what is it about, what is it about vaccines that make them effective for our immune systems?
1: Yeah. So with a vaccine, the idea is you're giving your, your immune system a way to identify and know how to fight a virus. So that's like the basic idea behind all the vaccines. And there's different ways that they do this. Um, but the the basic thing is you have your viral cell and it has antibodies on it. Like, which I believe are surface proteins.
0: So it has antigens, antigens on it. Antigens, sorry.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Misspoke. So your, your virus has antigens. Uh, your body has antibodies. So what happens is when this virus gets into your body, if your immune system doesn't know what it is, it like checks it out and stuff, but it doesn't know what it is, right? So it's gotta figure out what it is. It's gotta figure out it's bad, typically by it doing damage. And then it figures out that this is a bad thing. I have to fight it. It's gotta make up a, to to really anthropomorphize it. It's gotta like make up a plan to fight it, uh, take a picture of the virus, tell all the cells what's going on, and then it can fight it, which is why it typically takes a couple of weeks if you get sick for your body to really start to fight it if it's a new thing. because your body doesn't know what's going on, you know? It's like, to go back to smallpox, when Europeans came to North America and South America, when they came to the Americas uh, way back in uh, the 1400s, and they decimated uh, the native populations of those countries, what happened was the the populations who were already in North America had never, the Americas, had never been exposed to these viruses before. And smallpox is such a deadly one, and and it works fairly quickly, that it got into their system, and before their systems could figure out how to fight it, it killed them. So the idea with a vaccine is you take either part of the virus or a weakened uh, strain of the virus, and you put it into the body, basically giving your immune system a mugshot. So your immune system sees this thing, goes, can can take that time to figure out what it is and and that it's a problem and that it needs to learn how to fight it, gets a mugshot of it, figures out how to fight it so that if you get the full-blown virus, your immune system automatically goes, hey, I recognize you, you're bad, and it can mobilize a lot faster and a much stronger response compared to if you've never had it before, and it has to figure it all out the first time.
0: You touched on a number of different points there that I think are really interesting uh, for how our immune systems respond to infections. Uh, and in particular, why, like, you know, obviously have been dealing with COVID for a year, but we, you hear the word, the novel coronavirus was tossed around uh, in the first stage uh, of, of things kind of unfolding. And the reason for that is because it's this new disease and that was what, you know, that's what makes it so, so dangerous, so to speak, uh, from a societal perspective, from a health perspective, of course, as well, is that it is, um, it's a disease that our bodies don't have the ability to recognize, uh, have never seen before. And you compare it to something like influenza, like traditional influenza that you may or may not get inoculated for every year, is that like... It's in a class of diseases that we do deal with all the time as human beings. So you've had the flu or similar. You've been infected by influenza type um,
2: viruses. Viruses
0: throughout your life. They probably made you sick in the past. And what is done is, like you said, it's just giving you these mug shots or these. I you know, it's given the antibodies that are kind of the main, the first line in your immune system responds the ability to recognize these types of viral cells as they go about doing their, their, their work. And so, yeah, you got your antibodies and they're kind of the, the first line of defense, so to speak in that like they're scouts and they're going to kind of recognize the things that are, uh, that are things that are getting into your body, you know, getting past your, your real first line of defense, which is like your skin and those physical barriers. Uh, and I always kind of likened it to, you know, you've got your antibodies, the way we used to talk about it in science uh, class was um, you kind of, it's, it's like in the shape of a Y a little bit. Uh, and there's kind of four pieces that all kind of recombine and they give you the ability to detect basically like different things on the outside of other cells or viruses or things like that that are infecting you. And so, and those are the antigens. So another way to sometimes uh, talk about antigens is that people are really familiar with is blood types, right? So if you're an o o blood type on your red blood cell there's no antigen there's no proteins on the outside that's another good thing to say is that an antigen is really just a protein and so there's no there's no specific antigens on the outside of your blood which is why o is the universal donor so that you know if i give my blood i'm o type if i give it to someone who is a b type blood their body is their body knows like if i see blood cells with a b type on them that's me, so I shouldn't attack me. And, but it, and then if it sees blood cells with nothing on it, it doesn't recognize them. So it doesn't sort of go, oh, this is not me. I need to attack this. AB was also the worst possible example I could have used because AB is the universal acceptor. So they can accept all types of blood because they have both antigens. Whereas like, you can't give someone with B-type blood A-type blood because their, their blood cell, their you know their antibodies are used to seeing the B-type antigen only. And then they start seeing a type antigen and they're gonna force an immune response, which is why. So if you're given the wrong blood type in a transfusion, it causes your blood to clot because of the because of the effects of the immune response rejecting the part that's not you. Uh and then I mean, you know then you can go you can go into further and further the immune response kind of in within your own body. Like obviously, if you get um an organ transplant, you have to take immune blockers so that your body doesn't reject the new organ, regardless of how well of a match you are to the donor. And things like that. Uh, and that's sort of the first stage in, in fighting an infection, this, these antibodies. And that's, yeah, like you said, the what the vaccine is taking advantage of.
1: Yeah, And so if, if your immune system doesn't have this mugshot, as it were, then it can only recognize once the infection's already underway. And what happens with a virus when it gets into your body? Because a virus is, there's a lot of debate in the scientific community, or it's just, it's been a debate for a long time of are viruses alive or not? Because a virus is just a protein coating and a piece of RNA, right? DNA.
0: Well, that that's a really complicated thing because, <laughs> like, some viruses, like like HIV, is a retrovirus, so its its DNA is RNA. It only has the RNA portion, and then and and it's doing some other different things. So maybe this is a rabbit hole. <laughs>
1: All right. <laughs> so the reason that. The vaccines are trying to take advantage of this immune response. But if, you, if your body doesn't have this mugshot, then you, the virus has to infect you first. And the way that a virus infects you is it's just protein and then genetic instructions inside, whether they're double-stranded DNA or single-stranded RNA. It's got genetic instructions encased in protein. That's pretty much it. So it cannot reproduce on its own. So it has to get into your cells. And what happens when it gets into your cells is it basically takes it over your cell's machinery. Think of your cells as like little protein factory, the factory line. What's it called?
0: You would call it the line. line. (laughs) Uh,
1: So the line. So it takes over the line basically. And it says, hey cell, stop making your proteins and start making my proteins and my, all the things that I need. So the cell machinery gets taken over by the virus, starts producing virus stuff, makes a whole bunch of more viruses, which can then escape the cell and go and infect new cells. So this is what happens with infections. If your body doesn't have a mugshot, the virus kind of, it does this for a while. It takes over a bunch of cells before your immune system can respond.
0: It goes unchecked, as
1: it were. It does. It's like, I don't know, like a commando. It's in it's undercover, but not really. It's just hiding.
0: Well, place. yeah. And when you think about, right, like now you're talking about, Versus like one cell gets infected, it explodes and it spreads more virus. And then your your immune system starts fighting back versus that happens a hundred times. And now you're dealing with this huge viral load. That's a big thing about getting sick, right? Is that it's often our, the way when we feel sick, it's the result of our immune system doing its job. And what what's things like COVID have, it's been so dangerous for is that your immune system isn't starting to do its job until you've already gotten to this point of extreme damage by the virus. Like it's just running rampant through your body.
1: And if you've heard the term viral load used mm-hmm, before, mm-hmm. that's the amount of new viruses that your body, that have been like produced within your body. So if the infections run for a while, then that means this the virus has gotten into a whole lot of your cells and made a whole, whole lot more of itself. And that means if you come into contact with another person and you cough, then a lot more viruses, a lot more viruses are going to be in those droplets compared to if you had a small viral load. So that's why that like two week kind of incubation period you keep hearing about before you might recognize if you're sick. It, that means it the virus has two weeks from getting in your body to when you recognize that you have it to make more copies of itself. And literally, a virus's only function is to make more copies of itself. So it is very good at it.
0: <laughs> and this is, it's interesting because this is as, as well why like. The flu vaccine that comes out every year is generally more recommended for people of advanced age and or with other other you know potent, potential health outcomes. And one of the reasons is is that like yeah your body is not as effective as fighting diseases as you get older um, uh, and, and you, as, as you other have other conditions and things like that. And then what can happen is it can cause damage to specifically with lung infections like COVID and certain influenzas and things like that is it'll break down the lining in your lungs that protect the organ really and that's how you get bacterial infections way easier like like pneumonia and pneumonia is a real killer right and that is even with influenza before covid we talked every year about flu season and the surge in hospitalizations and and deaths that are associated with flu season and and trying to do these vaccination campaigns for flu and it's because so many of the outcomes for for people getting the flu, the, the negative outcomes, it's because of the pneumonia infections that come later. And the same thing is being seen with COVID it, to the point where there's some, there's some suggestion now that there may have been COVID cases in areas, especially in the States, much sooner than the first ones were actually reported because they're monitoring this uptick in the, in the early part of 2020 of these unexplained pneumonia cases that they now may think have been linked to COVID being in these communities before it was known.
1: And it's important to understand how a virus works and what the parts of it are to understand the most, uh, to understand the most kind of advanced of the newest vaccines, these mRNA vaccines, right? Uh, So like I said, RNA is a single strand of DNA and mRNA just means messenger RNA. It's just a type of the RNA that is in, it goes into the main part of your cell. Because in your cell, there's a thing called a nucleus. It's uh, where all your DNA is stored, all the genetic information. And your genetic information never leaves that nucleus. It's like a safe little house. But Davis is giving <laughs> me uh, some like, well, maybe.
0: So genetic machinery can get because some mRNA does leave the nucleus. The and
1: mRNA ore. does, yeah. not the DNA.
0: Yeah, but mRNA being genetic material.
1: Okay, sorry. That's a <laughs> good point. That was a non-specific. <laughs> I, I misspoke. So your DNA, your main like blueprint copy, does not leave the nucleus. But
0: yes, I concur. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but if uh, if your if genetic information never leaves the nucleus, you can never make proteins which is a problem because we need proteins for literally every all of life. Um, so instead what it does is it makes a copy of a single strand of it and sends it out into the rest of your cell. It's a little messenger of your genetic information and it's single-stranded, so it is messenger RNA. So this leaves the nucleus and gets used by that cell machinery to make the proteins. So that's what mRNA is, it's the single strand. So what these newest vac or the uh, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, these mRNA vaccines, they have made the process, It's instead of having to deal with like chicken eggs or live virus at all, any type of live virus, they just have the mRNA, which they can put into a human body. And when they do this, it basically, instead of giving your cells the mugshot, it gives your cells an like a recipe. So it puts this mRNA, it gets into your cells, your cells go, well, I can make this, this is within my graph. It makes the... Uh, the protein for this which is a spike protein from COVID. So it's just one of those surface proteins that we mentioned that viruses have that your immune system can recognize. All it does is make the protein. So it's not making the virus at all, there's none of the virus genetic information in you except to make this one protein. But that's a good thing for us because your cell makes this protein, the protein can then leave the cell and then your immune system goes, this is a weird protein, this is a weird antigen. What is this? And then it can figure it out and get that mugshot without having to interact with the actual virus itself. Uh, so, so yeah, so that's the, the Pfizer and the Moderna. Um, I know I, I came across some, some articles of people saying that because they heard RNA and they think DNA, they thought it was going to mess with their genetic information that it was like, if I got the mRNA vaccine, that it was going to get into my cells and mess with my, my DNA, but it cannot do that. It's not going to go into your DNA. It's not going to combine with your DNA in any way. It just goes into the cells, uses the machinery like a recipe to produce just the protein, not the full virus.
0: So we talked about Pfizer and Moderna, uh, and we'll go back to them in a little bit because they're really interesting in terms of the whole history of vaccines like we were talking about and, and, and why they were able to be created so quickly. And, and I think even in contrast to the next two, and it kind of works out this way, even in terms of timeline, uh, that these are the next two that were kind of approved. And we're mostly talking about ones that have been approved here in Canada. There's a few others around the world that are based off of similar technologies and slightly different technologies. But our big focus is on the ones that, that we're kind of in line for, so to speak. So the, the other two, the big ones, are sometimes we've heard, you may have heard of them referred to as the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, also known as the Janssen vaccine. Uh, and you've also probably heard this is the big one, and this is, I think, where I where I ultimately caved to you and we did we did vaccines <laughs> was because it just ended up being in the news so much the past two weeks was AstraZeneca. Uh it's in some jurisdictions it's known as Covishield and it just it really made a lot of news this week for some for for some other things but before we get to that we'll talk about like what makes these two different from Pfizer and Moderna really is that these are much closer to some traditional vaccine technologies and so the, they're using like a recombinant viral vector. Uh, some of them, some of it's recombinant, some of it's a little bit different, but basically what it is, is that we're taking something called like an adenovirus, which is the virus that causes like the common cold and that class of diseases. And we are altering its DNA in the same way that you might alter the DNA of a tomato to get yourself a genetically modified organism. Um, I use tomatoes cause they are actually kind of one of the poster child genetically modified organisms. Obviously, again, we live in Canada, you can't grow tomatoes all year round, but obviously you can go to the grocery store and get a tomato any time of the year. And one of the ways that it, it's ha- that, that we've been able to do that is that tomatoes won't actually go ripe now, genetically modified ones, until they're sprayed with a special chemical called ethylene. And that's they've been genetically engineered so that the ripening process, the cell process, won't happen until they receive ethylene. Uh, so we've been modifying organisms this way for a really, really long time, and it's a huge basis of of a lot of science and, and things like that.
1: And ethylene is actually something that plants will use naturally to to ripen yeah, so, so yeah. it's not like they're spraying it with like just with special chemical. it's it's the, It's the chemical they would be producing and using anyway, but just done in a more uh, controllable way. So that you don't have your ripe tomato when you pick them, and they get on the truck and they rot. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: that's a really, that's a really good way. Uh, that's a really good point to to add in, yeah, because that's why ethylene was chosen because it is in bananas. It's the ripening process. It's why you're not supposed to keep bananas in your fridge because fridges are sealed. And they will trap the ethylene and that will cause your bananas to go bad faster. So if you ever put like a banana in a brown paper bag and then you take it out for lunch, you're like, why? It was fine this morning. And now it's like a, you know, now it's like a banana bread banana. <laughs> it's because you've trapped all that ethylene around it. This is a huge, <laughs> huge um, tangent for what I meant to say so was...
1: Banana facts with David. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, genetically modified organism. But uh, essentially, it was, this is was the same thing that they've done with these viruses is that they have, uh, they have taken the viral DNA, and they have opened it up and they've spliced in a piece from the coronavirus, again, for this spike protein like we've been talking about. And then they, they over generations, they now create a new virus, essentially, out of this adenovirus. And the other thing is, is they'll remove the part of the adenovirus that makes you sick. Uh, so it's only carrying the genetic information it needs to basically either make more of itself or just exist. And, and like the genetic information it needs to, to get into your cell... And uh, and and utilize its cell, your cell machinery or, or trigger the immune response, and so what these two different ones do is they take the adenovirus. Now you've got it with the new DNA in it. You grow several generations of it, and it produces the spike protein. And then you inject it into the body, and the an- your your antibodies start to try to recognize those uh start to recognize those spike proteins. So you know uh just. Kind of different ways to skin a cat. You kind of get around to uh, <laughs> you get around to to creating these different vaccines. There, that's why these ones took a little bit longer. The process to sequencing um, sequencing mRNA for the Pfizer and uh, Moderna vaccines, and then creating new strips of mRNA is much faster than full recombinants into an organism. But you know we've been doing that recombinants for longer, so there's some trade offs.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's, it's it's the the whole issue around working with living organisms, right? Or and viruses may or may not be living. That's a different. That's a whole different discussion. That um. <laughs> yeah, we are we are not
0: qualified to weigh at all. I mean, that's
1: absolutely not. Yeah. I
0: mean, <laughs> interesting. Well, you know, actually. <laughs> I wouldn't even say we, we are not like, I mean, from a pure science perspective, the argument of our viruses alive or dead or is like just beyond sort of even the scope of anybody, uh, which is why it is a question that persists. But it is one that you see in like in high school biology textbooks. Yeah. It's, you know, oh, this is what life is. You need these things. And then viruses. Wow. We've never really decided because they don't do A and B, but they're all doing C, D and E. And yeah.
1: yeah, it's like because they need something else to reproduce. If you just like left a virus on its own, it has no chance, even if it was like with other virus buddies. There's nothing you can do if it's not inside a cell, so that's where mm-hmm. the that argument comes from. Um, but you still if you're trying to work with like an adenovirus and put in the new DNA and grow new generations, you still have to do that growing spot right that that whole like you have to like take care of the organism and make it a thing as opposed to just like writing a bunch of recipes essentially with the mRNA ones so what was the whole uh what was the whole astrazeneca?
0: Why is it in the news so much more? Well, so, you know, for one, uh, there's been some interesting, like, in, in North America here, America has, like, the states has not approved it, and Canada has. So there's been some interesting things there, uh, just the difference between the, the drug administrations. The big one, and then in Canada uh, and worldwide, there's been, even when even when it was approved, the when it was first approved, there was some evidence to suggest that if you're over the age of 65, around that age, obviously, it's not a straight cutoff, yeah. <laughs> nothing is, um, that you you might be more likely to have an adverse reaction to the vaccine. So you might you might be a little bit more likely to have some of the symptoms that are listed on every one of these vaccines. And, and you hear these stories of people getting the vaccine, some people that they're in bed for a day, they get like a slight fever, and, and they have some of the symptoms, and then they're better. And some people that have had nothing happen to them at all. So there was some... There was some fear that if you were a little bit older, you were a little bit more at risk with AstraZeneca. And a part of it was because it is this adenovirus, it's this viral vector, as opposed to these mRNA vaccines. So uh, you are giving, you do still have a large, you're basically, you still are infecting someone with a virus, even though it's been, even though it's not dangerous in the same way that a normal infection would be, uh, it can lead to some of these outcomes for people.
1: Okay. It, it's a stronger immune response, right? exactly. Yeah.
0: And then, and then, coming out of Europe, there's been some reports over the last couple of weeks of some concern around some clusters of blood clots of people who had received the vaccine. And so, basically, out of a, out of an abundance of caution, you know, obviously, they, to get on the market, you've passed all these regulatory steps. So, in in clinical trial, if there had ever been a moment where oh, stage three clinical trial, we've given all these people the vaccine. Now the doctor wouldn't know it at that time because these studies are what we call double blind, but uh, would could find out later that oh it turns out that you know ten percent of the people who had received the vaccine also reported a blood clot a serious blood clot over the course of the vaccine that vaccine would be pulled from circulation you like, would never get past that regulatory step so but but obviously these regulatory steps have been super sped up right uh, so there was some concern when they started to see these clusters of cases or of certain Specific things that there was some worry. Uh, I think, I think now certain jurisdictions in Europe have are are giving the AstraZeneca vaccine again. They've done this investigation on does it cause blood clots. Some jurisdictions have decided to go ahead. No, it doesn't. And then I think the overall EU approval should happen either. It either happened late last week or it's going to happen the, earlier this week. Canada never stopped giving the AstraZeneca vaccine.
1: Mm-hmm. I think both reactions are pretty valid you know and they're like you were saying it takes a lot for a vaccine to get to to human like to to people for in in large trial even in the way that it's being done now is it being sped up but it's still gone through like a, quite a lot of human trials to to know that the percentage of people who would have an adverse reaction was small enough to be like acceptable which is with any vaccine Mm -hmm.
0: what did you say what did you say the fastest one was before again I think you Uh, said it was the mumps mumps, vaccine mumps was
1: four years from uh like beginning to end other ones have had like candidates really quickly Mm -hmm. but the whole process they typically mumps is four years was the fastest
0: yeah and there's and I think it was something like even at the start of the pandemic the average length of time was 10 years uh what and because just and that's to go all the way from designing it you know, the theoretical aspect to the end of clinical trials full approval. But, you know, interestingly enough, right, like, for example, SARS, the original SARS infection, there, we never did come up with a vaccine for SARS, because that, that, that outbreak ultimately ended up, you know, dying out, just because it, it, it takes so long to figure these things out.
1: And whenever you do, so a lot of clinical trials that have three steps, like three stages, so the first stage, once once you've like gone through, you've made this thing, you think it's probably safe for humans, You stage one, you give it to a small-ish amount of people, you wait a few months at least to see if they have any reaction. If they don't, or if it's a very, very small percentage, then you go and you give it to some more people, right? Like hundreds of people, a couple hundred people. And then you do the same process, you wait a while, you make sure, and then you can give it to more people. You give it to thousands, like up to 5,000, I think is what some of the COVID ones were given. Uh, you wait, you make sure. Um, and with some of these trials, what they did is they, they kind of overlapped steps.
0: And this was something that they were only allowed to do because of the pandemic. This was something that the regulatory boards, like me, like the, the Food and Drug Administration in the States, uh, those boards around the world, it was one of... Normally, you couldn't do it this way. You couldn't have things going. You, you couldn't have phase one to three trials running subsequently. But obviously very quickly it was recognized that there was so much importance in in undertaking this very quickly because this is really the part that takes many years is these trials waiting for results analyzing the results getting approval for the next step on and on right yeah so i think it's interesting to talk a little bit about each of the four vaccines, and I, I know we're kind of talking about the two major groupings, really these mRNA vaccines, and obviously like those are the ones that were able to develop first. Like Pfizer, obviously, kind of has the uh, the um the bragging rights, so to speak. it's Not strictly, it's not speaking true because like they started inoculating some people in Russia with a vaccine that they had developed, but like Pfizer really became like the first one. Def- you know, obviously in Canada and the U.S first one in the eu i think that people started getting but it came with a specific an interesting caveat and a little interesting hurdle didn't it
1: it did it has to be kept really cold
0: mm-hmm. i don't i couldn't even tell you off the top of my head it's like it was like minus 70 degrees wasn't it for pfizer
1: yeah i think one was like minus 90 or something yeah, 70 to 90 70. or something yeah. like that
0: yeah and i mean
1: which is just cold and then like if you yeah. have a, if you have a virus that has to be kept that cold It's not just, okay, we have to keep it that cold in the lab, but we have to keep it that cold from the lab to wherever it's going. So that's like special containers Mm -hmm. on the plane or the truck or whatever. And there's like special trucks. And then once it gets to the facility, it's got to be kept cold there too. So special fridges and it just like, it really... It's like, we have this great vaccine. And then it put like a big wall in front of it.
0: Mm-hmm. It's why you see, like, if you watched a lot of the briefings around the vaccine stuff, or if you know in Canada, who's been um, spearheading the vaccine rollout or who is kind of given is the project manager, quote unquote, for this role. He, he's a military official. He's a high ranking military officer. I, I'm sorry I forget his name and, and rank right at this moment. <laughs>
1: How dare you? This
0: because <laughs> it matters. It's so <laughs> important. But um, you see this because, you know, army people are really good at logistics like logistics is huge if, if you're if you're an army um there's a very famous story of general Patton. he's considered one of the greatest generals of all time because of his ability to coordinate these types of logistics so he managed to march you know his entire his entire division from africa to to the battle of the bulge in like 60 days or something and that was huge to kind of saving the allies at that time. But this is why you see, so you see you tend to see these military guys are are taking responsibility for vaccine rollout uh, in many different countries because it's like you said it's this logistical challenge of how do we get this thing from point A to point B? But then on top of it now there's these storage requirements. And so why is it that? Pfizer and Moderna have these special storage requirements, but we don't hear it about AstraZeneca and Janssen.
1: So yeah, so it has to do with you have um, either the mRNA just kind of like floating in solution versus mRNA kept safe within a little viral protein casing, right? Or even folded
0: all the way into the genome, right? Right. Some of those viruses.
1: Yeah. So if you just have the mRNA floating, mRNA isn't designed to last very long. It's like in our cells, when, when we need to make protein, it's sent out of the nucleus, the protein's made, and then after a short while, it'll just break apart. Uh, so this vac- this these vaccines with the mRNA have to be kept really, really cold to keep the mRNA stable. It's super volatile, and otherwise, it'll just break apart on its own, and then by the time it gets to you, it's useless.
0: And this is why it's been really important, right, for the COVID vaccination effort for us to re- to get multiple types of vaccines, because obviously, right... If you live in a major civic center, it might be easy for someone for for, you know, the government to get you your dose of vaccine that needs to be stored at minus 90 degrees Celsius, which we haven't really gone into. And it's another complicated conversation. But keeping something that cold is not easy. It's a a huge engineering challenge to keeping something that cold. Uh, And, you know, so, yeah, you live in a big civic center with a big hospital. It might be easy to have access to a place where the vaccine can be stored that way. But if you live, you know, you think of some of the really remote communities that we have here in Canada, it can be very difficult to get a vaccine like that there. So when you have these more robust vaccines, as you could kind of call them in AstraZeneca and Janssen, they're going to survive a little longer, you know, they don't have to be stored at these insane temperatures, that you can get those vaccines out to those populations quicker. And, and that's why, you know, it's something like there's over, there's over 140 vaccine candidates worldwide for covid and many of them will not play a role in ending the current pandemic just because of how long it's going to take to develop some of them but the the worldwide effort of trying to do that many has been critical to getting these four out even to start
1: exactly and there there are a lot being made in that that way that the mumps one is being made where they try to, they take the virus and they weaken it and they make it more attenuated, you know? There are COVID vaccines in the works like that as well. They just take the longest. So the mRNA vaccines take the shortest amount of time to make. So if you can figure them out, you can produce them a lot faster. The ones where you have a different virus that can make the spike protein, those take second kind of amount of time. And then the traditional way we make vaccines, which we know is can be the most, it causes the greatest immune response. So you can have, like the most robust immune response, so you can have the greatest efficacy from them, but they take the longest.
0: That's one of the interesting things about, as well, obviously the big thing in the news now, in addition to the vaccines, sometimes you hear the race against time, the race against the variants, right, to mm-hmm. try to vaccinate before all these variants take hold. And then obviously this is the big con- conversation every time one of these variants comes out, how effective is the current vaccine? And one of the really interesting things about the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, both in the ability that the thing that made them so quick to produce in general also would make, makes them very easy to adjust for these strains. So the nice thing about both strains, now there's still, the science is still out on how, how much each of these individual vaccines are still effective against all of these variations of the coronavirus, but what most of the major um, strains that we're seeing now, the variants that we're seeing, they haven't seen significant mutation to the spike protein. So it might be changes to how many spike proteins there are, other things that are changing the virulence of the disease, but the shape of the spike protein has not changed significantly. So the immunity that you gain from one of these vaccines should still be effective. Obviously, again, we're, we're trying to find that out right now. Scientists are trying to find that out. Uh, But with Pfizer and Moderna is if there were big changes to that spike protein, all you have to do is change that mRNA language, the literal code that's there that makes the shape for the protein and adjust it to whatever the new one is. And then make essentially a booster shot that would boost your immunity to this new variant. The thing that actually stands in the way of it basically being able to have Vaccines for variants like within the week, because that's scientifically how quickly you could change the, the mRNA code and, and produce new ones is the testing procedure, right? Because it, you know, as the FDA or, or as a drug administration understands it, that is a new vaccine completely. So it should have to go through all of these new, all of these stages again. Obviously, these are, this is something that these companies and the regulatory boards are working together on to try to find solutions that are both protect people that are going to have to get the vaccine and allow these companies to make these changes because we're going to need protection from some of these variants, especially as some of them turn out to be more deadly or, or way easier to spread.
1: So overall, this is such a, you know, we've heard it over and over, but like such an unprecedented situation that we are willing to take a new look at the way that we're doing these things and the way that we're creating these vaccines and the way that we are testing them, not in a way that's going to put like, It's not increasing the risk a lot, but the damage that is being done right now to populations and to economies and to communities is essentially it's like it's like a worth the risk worth the slightly, 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 slightly increased risk of speeding up the process.
0: And and that's as well why, you know, you see with all these different vaccines, there's like there's different talks of like, oh, okay well, AstraZeneca or sorry, Pfizer or Moderna is like 90 and 80 percent effective. And then AstraZeneca is like 60. And then Janssen, which again is a one-shot vaccine, is something like 60. And so then you start to hear this conversation around like, oh, well, I want to wait for a really effective vaccine. Or I don't want to take this one because I'm worried it might cause blood clots. Or um, there's some other stuff that I don't want to get into uh, as much as they're... part of me wants to talk about, but it's just not really worth the discussion is is some of the stuff around. Maybe it is worth the discussion, but some of the stuff that's around like how the AstraZeneca vaccine was formulated with the use of some aborted human cell lines and things like that. It's a really interesting conversation. You start to get into like the ethics of human cell line research. uh, And there's some really, really great, really prominent stories, people that really, some stories that really deserve to be told about it, but it's a, it's, it's a huge topic, but you know, beyond all that is like really you, you start to hear this conversation of like, Oh, I want to take one vaccine or the other. Because one is gonna be way more effective at not, I'm not gonna get COVID at all. Like, or it's way more way more likely that I'm not gonna get it at all. But I think the really important thing, and this is the thing that I've kind of been saying to people when they ask me about the vaccine and things like that, is that like the big thing is that all of these ones, these the big four that we're talking about, all are gonna protect against those the worst possible outcomes. So when you talk about AstraZeneca only being 60% effective at not getting it in some in these stage three trials. The people that did get it in those stage three trials, none of them had severe outcomes. None of them were in the hospital. None of them were put on ventilators. None of them died. And for me, that's pretty good. Yeah. You know, like I'll take no death and still get sick any day um, over get sick and die for sure. <laughs> and I think the other thing is really so this is the this is the, the game that I started to play with people. Uh, and I, I, I encourage you to try this with people because it's really interesting. <laughs> is if someone came and knocked on the door right now and said, I got the Janssen vaccine in one hand and I got this voucher for the AstraZeneca va- for the Pfizer vaccine in three months, what would you do? And of course my answer is like, you know, stick it in me, bro. Like give it, give it to me. And, um, <laughs> in more ways than one, maybe, um, you know like like no no delay and and that was something interesting so like i i kind of gave my mom this game and she played it with a bunch of people and she said when i asked young people like my mom's a teacher so some of the some of her colleagues are are younger you know younger teachers young people she would ask they would be like 100% give it to me like <laughs> stick it in me bro um and then it was more the some of the older people it was more the you got ah the hesitancy to it but it, it's a really interesting game. But what I don't know, like, I, I don't know, what, what does that elicit in you? Like, what kind of response does that elicit to you, Sarah? I
1: think, uh, I mean, I might pick different phrasing. Uh, but <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but I, yeah, I mean, at first, like, when I heard the numbers, I was like, well, then why would you even get the the lower percentage one? Because is it going to work? But the fact that it's going to reduce the the damage that it can do to you is huge. Because that's part of, like, I'm, like, young and healthy, right? Like, I would fit into that category. So the chances of it being bad if I get it are low. But that doesn't mean young and healthy people don't get it and die. So Or
0: have, you know, and we don't know what, what kind of things that this might cause 10 years, 20 years down the line in terms of damage, right?
1: Exactly. Like, the, the effect to your life in the now, potentially, and the effect to your life long term, which we just, we, there has it hasn't been around long enough, the virus, for us to know this long term effect and when i started looking into other vaccines no vaccine is 100% effective like even smallpox the smallpox vaccine was not 100% effective in the way we're talking about efficacy now it's just if you give it to enough people you weaken the virus enough and you stop the virus's ability really to spread enough that the virus will die out and like that's hugely important, right? That's what this whole herd immunity thing is.
0: I was just going to say that. I was like, you're leading perfectly into this conversation of herd immunity. You're welcome. And, and it, well, it is. It was like, I know, you couldn't, you couldn't write a better segue. And and it is. It's because, you know, the smallpox thing is such a good example because it's not 100% effective. And the conversation around herd immunity is also really important because there are, like you were talking about with eggs or, you know, we we're talking about with chicken eggs earlier, is that there are always people who cannot get a vaccine because of the effects it might have on them, because they're going to have allergic reactions to it. There might be ingredients in it that, that are going to make them sick, and or, or that they may have other things in, like, other diseases and things, right? Uh, or, yeah.
1: Or the immune response itself, right? Because an immune response is mm-hmm. stress on your body, and if your body is really, really weak, any stress of that sort can really hurt you. Yeah,
0: exactly. So if you have other, you know, comorbidities or conditions that you're dealing with, it may not be possible for you to get a vaccine. And if we get up to this herd immunity point where, you know, you've got 90% of the the population vaccinated, can't get the disease, can't spread it, and then 10% of the population that just can't get the vaccine, those 10% are still protected because they, you know, unless all 10% of them get together for a smallpox party, which, you know, obviously is not going to happen, they're not going to be able to infect each other. And then they, basically the space between the people that can infect each other in society is so wide that that the disease eventually dies out. And you here, obviously, we talked a lot about this R value over the course of the pandemic, when you talk about the numbers and things like that. And that's what happens when, as the vaccinations go up, the ability of the R number to be above one becomes like it's just it the ability to stay that high becomes lower and lower
1: yeah because it's like you can imagine one person who has covid they're surrounded by a bunch of people if all of them are immunized against it they're all they've all had the vaccine their Mm -hmm. systems know what to expect the virus can jump to all of them and it will not replicate within them it will just the immune system will take care of it which means the virus can't continue to spread Mm -hmm. that's what which is exactly why this herd immunity is so important
0: and that's where we kind of what's, and that's what ties together this whole, like, should you wait for a particular vaccine? Does it matter that some of them are more or less effective at, at not catching COVID entirely, right? Like they're all, again, very effective at preventing death. And, and it really ties this whole thing together is that, or even the variants conversation, because we are in this race against trying to get our herd immunity up as fast as possible, to protect the parts of the, the parts of the community that can't be vaccinated and just in general, so that we can start kind of going back to a more regular life where we can kind of deal with people more generally. Um, Because again, like we get closer and closer to having this space between two people that have been, that haven't been vaccinated yet.
1: Yeah. Which is super, <laughs> like I'm saying super important a lot, but that's a uh, part of, part of why it's important is that if, if only some people are getting vaccinated, then because the virus, if you're vaccinated, the virus can still get into you. It's just not gonna replicate in the same way, but there's a potential, depending on the timeline of it, that you could still pass it on to someone else. If you have a, a lot of it gets into your system or there's just like a really unlucky droplet, right? Cause it's all just chance theory. So you may be vaccinated, so you're not gonna get sick from it. But if you pass it on to someone who's not vaccinated, There could be a problem. So if the viral load in the community, if there's still enough virus out there jumping around without enough people being vaccinated, it's not going to it's not going to work in the same way. So as many people who can get vaccinated need to get vaccinated.
0: And that's why you've seen these policy changes around like most of the vaccines that were currently available are two shot vaccines. And originally, it was supposed to be about 90 days apart, you're supposed to get the two doses. Most jurisdictions have now increased that to, to four months, the actual Health Canada recommendation is now four months. And and it's all just in this, this, this run up to try to get as many people the first dose as possible, because obviously, that's also going to really decrease your your likelihood of a severe outcome. But it's it's interesting, because what they've started to see now is that people will get their first dose of the vaccine. And and then we'll have a very, very hard time following the COVID rules again. Or some of them, right? Or that that then there's these spikes. And I think it really speaks to, you know, we are literally like last week was like a year, right? I think sometimes I use, I obviously use, you know, we, we worked at the Science Center and we were closed on March 13th. That was the day that that, that leadership made the decision like the building has to close its doors. But I always also use that that week, the NBA that Wednesday canceled their season and that was really the turning point in my mind when i think back in memory like that was this moment and it's been a year since then it's been now over a year since that moment and you know in a year of it's been up and down and so many jurisdictions are going through their they're they're going into a third wave now or they're at risk of a third wave you know ontario is talking about they they're saying that we're in the third wave they were saying that last week Alberta is trying to make a decision about reopening into stage three, but it's clear that we're at the outset of a third wave, but it it really does seem like, I don't know what is this, I don't know how it seems to you, but it's it's really felt to me in the last couple of months, especially that it's just like the gas tank is empty.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, people are calling it a whole bunch of things related to COVID fatigue and that stress level. And uh, one interesting term that I came across that I, I really like to help explain this is surge capacity. So it's the difference in our ability to respond to an acute versus a long-term disaster. Because what COVID is, what COVID is, is a long-term disaster. It's, we have to, we've had these massive changes to our life. Maybe we're not dead. Well, we're not dead. Maybe we haven't known anyone who's died directly from COVID, but it has upturned our lives. You're working from home. You're not going to the gym. You're not having parties. Weddings are canceled. Like, all around the place, we're just our whole way of life has changed and really been like taken away. Imagine something like a tornado comes through your town. It's an immediate visible thing that once it's gone, it's gone and you can deal with the aftermath of it. Whereas something like COVID, we are dealing with a long-term pandemic and we've just, we've all just kind of run out of gas because we tried and because we've never gone through something like this before, our response is that acute response, that short-term Okay, this is a problem. Let's do what we can to fix it, and we mobilize. But then it keeps going, and it keeps going, and it keeps going, and it's it it drains that it drains your gas tank about it.
0: Yeah, one of the things I said really early on to people during the pandemic, uh, right when the first lockdowns happened, and when it became, you know, the first couple of weeks, I remember a lot of people saying to me, or just in conversation with people, oh, you know, like in 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 four weeks' time we'll be back at work, and in this time, you know, this amount of time we'll be back at work, and I really told was remember telling a lot of people or or saying was just that like this is this is not going to be a sprint like this is a marathon that we are all undertaking together and there's an interesting thing about marathons uh that most people quit a marathon in the first mile and the last mile uh and I've always found that quite interesting they say it happens because like in the last mile in particular because you run the 25 or the 26 miles of the, of the marathon. And for some people, there's part of them that just sort of goes, well, you've done 98% of it. Right. Uh, I know the math is terrible. <laughs> um, so you've done it essentially, you know, the, and so the part of and that obviously, you know, the 26 mile of a marathon is the part where it's all mental. It's not even, it's, you know, it's, it's the mental capacity to, to, to do it, to keep your body going. And a lot of people just sort of go, okay, well you've done it. You've, you've achieved it. And they stop. And I think that you kind of do really see that over the course of this pandemic. I think you have the people that gave up in mile one, that just sort of went, a mask? I'm not going to wear a mask. Um, And then you have the people that that were like like good little soldiers and followed all the rules and yelled and screamed at the people that didn't wear masks. (laughs) You know, I drove by even this weekend. I drove by the Walk for Freedom here in Alberta, which is the anti-mask protest. You know, and it's, it it is, it's just silly to see, but, but I, but those are the people that gave up on mile one. But now I think what you see is the person who tried really, 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 really hard and they just, the the mental anguish of having to do it this long, it's just, you're on mile 25 and you've done pretty good enough. And now that you can see the end of the tunnel, you know, I think it'd be different if none of these vaccines were approved. You are having a very different conversation today. But I think now that you can sort of go, well, my grandparents have been vaccinated. My mom was fortunate enough to get an AstraZeneca vaccine this past week because uh, because they were giving it to people over 65, which they've now changed. But you start to see the end of the tunnel and and just like in the marathon, well, I've made it far enough. I haven't gotten COVID at this point, so maybe I, I won't in the one month that it's going to take to get a vaccine.
1: Or if I get it, it's not going to be that bad. The vulnerable people in my life are protected, so that's, that's who I most care about. And once they're taken care of, then I can go about my business. Cause a lot of people have been keeping themselves safe and locked away to protect those most vulnerable in their lives.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, the COVID fatigue thing, it's just, it's so, it's so interesting to just watch the trajectory of this conversation. Obviously, Last March it first happens. It's a new disease. We don't know how deadly it is. We we know how dangerous SARS was. Obviously, um Canadians especially, like, you know, even if you weren't in Toronto at the time, the word SARS has me has has really deep rooted meaning here. And right away it's this new scary thing. So it's and and again, like you were saying, it's this acute thing to respond to. So it's easy for us to go into that kind of that 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 hardcore you know, disaster mode—the the surge capacity, like we were talking about, and then it, but then it doesn't stop, and and then you we learn a little bit more, right? And then and then we've got you know in the early days, and I think a big part of it not wanting to cause a panic, there are conversations around no, you don't need to go out and buy trillions of gallons of hand sanitizer, no, you don't need to worry about wearing a mask. And then that conversation shifts, right? And then all of a sudden the scientists start saying, and the scientists with platforms especially start saying, okay, now we're thinking you maybe should wear a mask. And like, there was so much resistance to it. And then people saying, oh, well, you told us last week we didn't have to wear a mask. And like, do you think it would have been like, y- you know, I think you and I, we know a little bit like, we, like, I think we have opinions on why we think those things happen. And like, why do you think it's been so exacerbated under COVID? Uh, like this shift in this shift in um, you know you've got the scientists, you know, you got people like uh, Dr. Tam and uh, I, won't, I won't bring up the states because that's a whole other conversation <laughs> from a political perspective. but like you've got these doctors who Hinshaw. were like and Hinshaw who were heroes at the start, right and then have now kind of been vilified. or or have been vilified every time they've said something and then had to switch it up, even though you and I as scientists know that that's how scientific discourse works, um, is that we didn't didn't know if masks made any difference. And so the cost benefit of do we cause a panic by telling everyone to wear a mask versus is it going to actually prevent anything? And then also people are going to be buying the masks that we actually really need to keep for the people that actually are going to deal with it, you know, um, we didn't know originally if it was a fully respiratory disease. Now we do know that it is actually a respiratory disease. You know, it's spread through the droplets and things like that. I remember the big thing early on was the surfaces, right? Don't touch stuff. Wash your hands after touching stuff. You know, Wash
1: all your groceries when you bring them home.
0: I remember. You know, that's like super interesting. Like I remember we, the first couple of weeks we were in lockdown, did a huge grocery shop. You know, and you're going and there's the bare shelves. You can't buy flour. Yeast is gone. Toilet paper, paper towel, certain consumables. The pasta aisles were empty, right? Like, people were ready for the apocalypse. And I laughed because I used... You know, you ever seen one of those shows like Doomsday Preppers, Preppers. right? (laughs) All of those people, right? Like, that is... You know, some of those, that's what those people would talk about too. like, they're not preparing for a specific disaster. They're preparing for the environment of a disaster where this exact thing happens. It just, it was boggled my mind to realize that like all of those people, as soon as anything like this happens, those people are proven right. It doesn't matter if it's not nuclear holocaust or whatever, but it's like, if you have a big stockade because you're worried about having to lock down for six weeks, like you're a doomsday prepper now.
1: (laughs) I think it's an important reminder that we should all have like emergency kits in our homes, which mm-hmm. is a, a mm-hmm. thing that maybe seemed like a bit of a far off thing at first. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think this this whole COVID fatigue is just, it's it's having to, to go through that initial panic, that initial stress, the not knowing. And yet in Canada, we, we had a glimpse a few weeks into the future because we could look at places like Italy.
0: Very right? true. You even forget about that. Yeah. yeah. Oh and
1: I mean, God. I remember when... when COVID was first starting and like I wasn't taking it super seriously when I first heard about it because I was because we've been so like sensationalized to everything with the news the news is always like is your bread killing you? Fuck <laughs> out not 11, right? Like and it does that to you everything so even yeah. I and like someone who works in science communication who talks about this I heard about it all like I'm not that really I'm not that worried about it and then I had a friend reach out and say like maybe you should be worried like uh, they're a smoker so they said if I got it, it could do a lot of serious damage to me because my lung tissue was already compromised. It was like, I could have lung problems for the rest of my life because of this. And I was like, oh, dang, that's a good point. And like, that's just one, one factor, right? There's so many that it could be. And then the NBA was a big trigger for me too. It was like, that's kind of, that started this whole cascade of people being like, maybe this is really serious. And mm-hmm. then we saw Italy and seeing videos from Italy of people being like, I wish Four weeks ago I had just stayed home. Like and and trying to implore people around the world to do the same. And like, I that that started being a bit of a trigger for me, but it, it didn't it 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 caused such a weird split. It caused the panic shoppers, right? Buying everything all at once, thinking they were gonna have to hold up forever. And it caused the people to to kind of double down, which we see a lot in politics and stuff, double down on this isn't a problem. Um, mm-hmm. you're overreacting people overreact to everything all the time.
0: I you know I re- I really remember a lot of the the conversations when covid it was a big thing in you know we were hearing the news out of China and I do remember like we had conversations at work about you know oh you know if we had if we had started working on this project 2 3 weeks ago we would be talking about covid or we would try to produce a show about covid and and I was sort of saying like, well, we're kind of missed the boat on it now because it's 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 the the hot news topic this week and two weeks from now, it'll be, no one will be talking about it again. And I even remember, and I will probably for the rest of my life never forget doing this, but I remember getting approached by Breakfast Television, a, a morning show here in Calgary to do a segment about COVID-19 the week before everything shut down and them wanting to talk about like, we, we talked about a lot of things and one of my big things was, well, I don't want to cause a panic because this is just going to be this big thing that blows over. And this was already at a point in time where people were like panic buying toilet paper for whatever reason, like only toilet paper too. like other <laughs> certain panic buying things that you would think like, oh, like you'd need a lot of this to survive. But, like toilet paper, the run on toilet paper was insane. And I just like, I remember saying to the host, like in, in our pre-call and setting it up, like, Oh, I don't, I really don't want to talk about, um, I don't want to talk about this. Like, I don't want to cause a panic. Uh, they wanted to do, we ended up doing the segment. I, initially, I had a lot of resistance to it was a, a how to make your own hand sanitizer. And then three months later, you've got all the local distilleries producing hand sanitizer. So, you know, sort of it was insane how quickly things changed. And how quickly it went from, oh, this is just like, you know, avian flu a number of years ago, or swine flu, or like, it's all gonna blow over. And to like, oh, I'm not going back to work on Monday, because there's no work to go back to. Like, that was so strange, in general. And, and now, yeah, now that we're a year later, and I think like, you know, it's just, it's gotten so hard, like, I'll even admit for myself, like, it's much harder to follow the rules now, and to, and to, to, like, obviously, like, I wear a mask, I wash my hands everywhere I go, you know, I have hand sanitizer in my car and, like, both jacket pockets, like, I've got, I find little jars of it all over the place now, but I do find, like, some of the, some of the restriction stuff is just hard to listen to nowadays, and I think there's so many reasons, like, why we've ended up in that place.
1: It also gets frustrating with, we talked a bit about the, the changing rules, right, Mm -hmm. Um, and as the, part of the process of science, is you adapt to new information and you, you change your opinion based on new information. And because you have to, because that's how science progresses. Um, and you make new recommendations based on that. But it was just frustrating that the action wasn't taken seriously in the beginning. Like part of the whole response of it was, people were like, we don't want to cause a panic. We don't want to overreact. But the appropriate reaction will look like an overreaction in hindsight, right? And we can, we can see that with New Zealand. New Zealand did four weeks... Everyone at home, everything shut down. We are gonna go really, 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 really hard right off the bat. And now they're fine. They're they're doing pretty well compared to the rest of us who are like, maybe wishy washy. Let's kinda don't, but yes. And now we're in this place where it is lingering. It's like it's like if you you're talking about getting sick. It's like you get a you get a bit of a cold. Uh, and then you like you don't really rest properly, you don't really take any time, and then it just lingers, or you get an injury. That's a better example. I, I, yeah, I was gonna yeah. say an injury is
0: a really good one.
1: Mm. Yeah, so like you get say like you you mess up your, your knee, right? And then you you kinda do your physio, you kinda rest it, but you don't you never really rest it and you never really recuperate properly. So then you have an injury for years, or potentially the rest of your life,
0: or in the attempts to get back onto your injured leg sooner, you create a new injury, and I think that that's a lot of what this COVID stuff. I think, like acutely, we saw that in Alberta with um, with the decision to this the impatience to get back out on the injury, the you know the injured leg or whatever, and it causes bigger problems down the line. And I think so many different jurisdictions have seen that across the world that have, when they've made their decisions to open up and then, and then in hindsight, it proves to be prematurely, right? I think the other big thing that has really contributed to this, the change that underwent from like the beginning of the pandemic to now is really, it it stopped becoming a science conversation at some point in time and it became an entirely political conversation and I almost it's like this little slider that you see change throughout the year where it's like 100% science 0% politics 90% science 10% politics and then just over and over and over until like today where I do think you're we're talking like 0% science 100% politics it feels like sometimes um, in some places. I, I think that that's hyperbole and, and it's, it's it's dramatizing the whole thing a little bit. But I think now we're, the conversations around COVID are so much more political. And I do think that that's one of the reasons why it's, it, some of these things have become harder to talk about. But a big thing I think has been why it's harder, why COVID fatigue is really hitting so hard right now is we have really started to see some of these people who are, Telling us what to do, or enacting the laws that are supposed to tell us what to do, blatantly disregarding their own rules. Yeah, and that is something that we acutely saw here in Alberta. Yeah. It has its own. It has its own hashtag gate. It's got. Um, it is now uh, hashtag Aloha Gate is what <laughs> it is. Uh, and for those of you that may not have heard about it, it was a, And it, it, there are other other areas in Canada where this exact same thing happened. All over uh, the place. All, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but basically there were a number of uh, mainly conservative MPs. Uh, well, sorry, not MPs. Uh, there were there were a number of MLAs here in Alberta who over the Christmas holiday went to Hawaii despite the uh, the government's kind of not a stay at home order, but like basically the government's staunch recommendation not to travel outside of the country. Uh, the the Alberta government's recommendation, like obviously the Canadian government was saying don't travel, but the Alberta government specifically had said, Do not travel over the Christmas holiday. Like, don't even travel within the province. And then there were a bunch of MLAs, and it would have been one thing to have sort of gone on vacation, but there were MLAs that on their Twitter and Instagrams were making posts specifically designed in ways to make it appear as though they were still in Alberta. So you have got, you know, the person taking a photo for their Instagram story in their, like, multi-million dollar Airbnb down in Hawaii or whatever who is like in front of a fireplace with no windows in the shot with a big sweater on and things like that specifically to try to mislead people and i think it's things like that like uh have really weakened the ability to enforce some of these things don't you
1: absolutely and we saw it even in uh, in october in october in alberta there was a rule of like you could have up to 15 people i think in a gathering and then people had Halloween parties, you know, they had Halloween parties of up to 15 people. And then we had a spike in numbers. And the government came back and was like, we are so disappointed in you for having the amount of people in your house that we said you could have, we didn't mean it. Like, you shouldn't be doing this. And it was like, well, you, that was a recommendation you set, which is why like, the recommendations they make are really important, because the people who are trying to follow the rules, they're following those rules, because they think that those rules will keep them safe, because that's what the government has told them. And then the government has come back and been like, well, you followed the rules and you're bad, bad people. And you're like, well, give us better rules.
0: I think that's a perfect example, right? Because it again, it really speaks to this, you know, this the politics of the science is that mm-hmm. like the science obviously says that, yeah, like even 15 people in a house, like if one of those people has COVID, it's a huge risk for everyone that's there. That's the science. The political part of it is, well, we need to give people guidelines. And if our guidelines, and especially in a province like Alberta, Need I say more about the political climate here, but, you know, in a province like Alberta, you know, if you are too stringent, people won't follow it, and people will be up in arms about it, and then if you're too lax, it doesn't mean anything, so you end up in this weird this weird spot where, yeah, like you said, you've got people following the rules and people breaking the rules and having these parties, and then the government condemning all of them, and it's sort of being like, well, then then why was that not your rule? And I think that that's what, if you and me as lay people, like, not involved in politics... That's what we say to ourselves, right? And so it becomes again, it just another another straw on the camel's back of how do I listen to these people that are telling me what to do when I'm gonna get, you know, I'm gonna get punished either way. It, it, it's like if you're you can't raise a child that way, right? Like you can't you can't raise a child and say like, oh, if you do this thing, you'll get a candy, and then just smack them instead. I don't know. If that's a <laughs> terrible example.
1: <laughs> but it's it's this whole like we've been trying to listen, but they're not putting strong enough measures in place, so we're all getting really tired of this like we know there's an injury
2: mm. we know
1: we do know that if we had completely shut down for like 4 weeks we'd stop it right we would we would go leaps and bounds to stopping it but they've never gone that hard on a rule so they just kind of we've just been like limping along for so long that people are getting so tired of listening
0: and i would say as well the pro, pro, part of the problem too of that is that like the cat's out of the bag So like, we're at a point now where like, even the strictest of lockdowns can't eliminate the coronavirus in our communities like it did in New Zealand, Um, you know, nowadays, but you're right, you know, a year ago, if that had been the decision, if the even if the decision, for example, to close the US Canadian border had come a a couple weeks earlier, right, like, it would have made the huge differences, like, and it's really, really tricky. And again, this is this hindsight is 2020 thing. um, And we would have, I, I actually think that hindsight 2020 is going to take on a new meaning oh. post 2020 because of the coronavirus. Like I, I had this, I said hindsight 2020 like colloquially the other day and in my head I went, I bet you it's going to take on a new meaning now because the way we communicate, I don't know, just because slang is so cool I, it, and it's just like, I, it, yeah. I don't know, just because I think everyone thinks like me. Um. It's, it's also, it's, <laughs> what,
1: what a year for it to happen in, you know? Oh, exactly, right?
0: <laughs> And that's the other thing I, actually, that's another very good segue for me, (laughs) was I was going to say, like, you know, what a year, like, what a time place, time period for it to happen. Because could you imagine this exact, obviously, you know, a statement could be made that like, oh, well, if, you know, if coronavirus had happened in the 90s, it may not have spread as quickly anyway because we didn't travel the same way we did then. The world wasn't as accessible. Like, even in the 90s, like, obviously, we still have planes and stuff. But, like, people, the movement of people was not as pronounced as it is today. But, like, imagine the this exact same set of circumstances in the 90s, like, pre... I, I know the 90s is, again, not pre-internet, but, like, pre-the internet, we have it today. Yeah. You know, like, so you're talking pre-internet. Personal computers are only so powerful. There isn't this ability to work like you know we are at a technological sweet spot for something like this because you can do 80 percent of jobs these days remotely like there are a few few very few jobs that need a human being there that don't also involve entertaining or servicing other human beings yeah. <laughs> um and so but so imagine you know the pandemic in a pre-internet age but also how much do you think that that whole the Zoom thing has added to our COVID fatigue because we're just tired of talking to people on screens?
1: Yeah, I know. I get really tired of, of talking to people on screens. When this started, I, I don't text a lot. But when this started, I was texting a lot. And there was there'd be like whole evenings where I'd be trying to watch a show. Like a 30-minute show would take me an hour and a half to get through because I would keep pausing it to reply to people. And then after a few weeks of that, I stopped replying to like everyone because I was just tired of it. And then, yeah, video calls. I feel kind of fortunate. I haven't had to be on them all the time. Because even when like having to be on them for a couple of weeks, you feel so watched. You feel so much more watched than you do in in person. And essentially...
0: <laughs> sorry, I have a little funny aside. Oh. I got so, especially with the work from home thing, and there were so many video calls. I got I got to a point. I got really paranoid that my devices were listening to me. More than I ever have. Or not even if they were listening to me. I know my devices were listening to me. Um, <laughs> I got really paranoid that I had not, like, that I was in a call or something like that. That I hadn't hung up or that I hadn't muted myself. Uh, like, you know, uh, it, but I, that I wouldn't be in a call, but my computer would be open and away from me. And and I would be saying stuff or I'd be, you know, venting about my day at work, just normal things or whatever. And, but that would be picking up everything I was saying. Like, I just developed this paranoia. But Sorry.
1: No, that, that's totally fair. And I mean, I remember when this started, like my desk is in my bedroom. And if I sit at my desk and I have my computer on my, on my desk and then you see me and you see my bed. And I found that so weird. I think I did like two meetings there. And then I was like, well, I guess I do all of my work on the kitchen table now because I don't, like it felt like such an invasion of privacy to have just be like hi work people that's my bed this is a weird thing for you to see you know and and I feel a lot of students are feeling that now I have a lot of teacher friends who they, they they're talking about how hard it is to teach to a bunch of gray squares because students won't turn on their cameras because it's a lot of students they're probably like they're working in their rooms right so there's an invasion of privacy there's the feeling of being watched all the time and having to like really like look like you're engaged or and then if you're the only one who's going to turn on their camera it's just like caused such a a spiral of of reactions that people don't really understand it's like i feel for my teacher friends but i also feel for the students man
0: oh absolutely i uh i have a friend and and she's doing a diploma right now and it has just been such a nightmare at times like the online learning and I know for me like I like I couldn't imagine having to do my undergrad in under these conditions I tried to do like a, an online course like once in high school over the summer just like get ahead and um I don't think I completed a single unit of it uh and I just because like it was just a it was an atrocious way for me to learn and that's one of the things that I've I've been saying uh to, to, to people about it a little bit is that like you're not a bad student you're bad at online learning. And that's not your fault. Like not everyone learns in the same way. Very, very few people are good at online learning because it's like, it's I'm not a big audiobook listener, for example, because I can't engage with an audiobook. I know people that love them, though. Uh, some of them love them because it is a bit more passive. Um, or, but some of them find some people find them very engaging. I, I, I don't I, I'm going to get distracted, I'm going to be doing a 1000 other things. And I just think that there are very few students that excel at online learning in the same way that there are people that excel in the classroom. There are people that excel practically, um, you know, and, and and everything in between. But I just think that that specific niche of I'm really good at learning through Zoom is small. And I think as well, certain subjects, it just...
1: I was yeah, going to say, yeah. like, I studied theater, right? In, in high school, I did, like, I did the sciences, and math and English but I also did dance and drama and music and choir and like what my high school experience would have been like without the arts and then my my undergrad is half theater and the other half was in a lab so like dissecting plants so I couldn't have done those and my master's is was theater and it was devised and it was immersive so the audience is really close to the actors and the actors are really close to each other so that I wouldn't have been able to like I would not have been able to do my master's work in this condition it would have been completely different and so the prospect of doing this, like, as a 12-year-old, we need to just understand that COVID, even once we're all vaccinated, which we need to do, I'm just going to keep pressing <laughs> upon that point, we're going to have to be pretty patient with each other and understand that we're not going to go back to normal, and normal's going to be different for a while. hmm
0: I I think yeah there and there's one more part of the whole COVID fatigue thing that I want to talk about I think before we kind of put a bow on the whole the whole topic here or the whole and even the whole vaccine conversation and it is I think like it's this the the change to the nature of work as a result of co- the COVID pandemic and as a re- and part of the fatigue that we're experiencing now as well you know I I do really feel like. That there are jobs that will never go back to being as much in an office space as they were before,
1: or have more flexibility.
0: Yeah, I think that I think that's right. I think it's a real, I think that's the best way to put it. The flexibility will probably never go away again. Now that there's no excuse to say like, oh, it's impossible to work from home for certain types of jobs. I think the flexibility, like you said, is the perfect word for it. I think you will see even jobs that could be done completely remotely. But involve teams of people. They will go back to working in offices because of the because that that element of it is important. Okay. Um, the, you know, even to the point where it might not be. It is valuable if, if if you and I are working on a project together. Obviously, it's way better if we're in the same room and we can talk about it and we can see each other's cues and things like that. But even to the point where just like the camaraderie of a team when you're in a, when you're in an environment together versus like we see each other on a screen for an hour a day is huge like when you can have lunch together and when you can go you know oh let's take a 15 minute walk together let's go get grab a coffee those sorts of things I think are so important to I would make an argument about the nature of work you know how much do human beings need to work compared to how much we do right now for our society and just for our health in general you know that's a whole separate conversation, <laughs> but like those things are so important to the to the the mentality of work and the mental health of of going to work, and that's kind of you're kind of pointing to you're pointing at your noggin. and uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. But sorry, just like the, the the question, I guess I would ask you, or like the conversation piece would be re- interesting to explore quickly, is like this talk of like the essential worker that, you know, the person who does it cannot, like the grocery store clerk who can't work from home. And when I talk about essential, like, I don't, and when we go into this conversation now, like, we're not talking about the nurses and the doctors and the healthcare practitioners that have been critical to like, fighting the pandemic. And obviously, like,
2: the the
0: thing is that they're going to get a lot of attention, right? And And rightfully so. Uh, because of the risk that they're taking and things like that, especially the acute risk. And it, and it is so easy for us to recognize doctors and nurses. But when you think about, yeah, the minimum, when I talk about essential for this part of the conversation, it is really, it's about that person who like has worked at Superstore, the grocery store all year long. They've never closed. They probably worked more shifts than they used to. Early on, they were probably working more hours than, than ever before, right? And then they And then the whole time they have been taking on this additional risk but the nature of their work hasn't changed or the benefits that some frontline essential workers have received aren't the same that the the minimum wage worker does.
1: Yeah, it's it's taking a toll on people, right? Like those people who have to deal every day and I mean there's times when I'm in the grocery store and yeah, basically every time I'm in the grocery store you see someone with the mask under their nose. Right?
2: <laughs> and, and yes. You know, <laughs>
1: Your a nose, year later. Yeah, and, and the joke that I always make is like, well, your nose and your mouth are connected, you know? So if you have a mask under your nose because it's hard to breathe, I know that you're now breathing out of your nose. So why are you wearing a mask at all? But anyway, this is a di- diatribe I <laughs> go on. Uh, but you see those people and it's like, okay, well, I, I want to go up to them and say something, but it feels like it's not my place because I'm just another customer. So you kind of look for the staff to do it because they're the only ones with some sort of authority. But really- They've been doing this for a year, and they have had probably every frontline worker in this sense has had a negative interaction with someone who yells at them because we're all close to breaking, right? Like, everyone is dealing with a lot of stress right now, so that person is really dealing with stress of whatever they're dealing with, and then the the, the grocery store, like, the, the attendant comes over to them and says, hi, sir, can you please pull up your mask, and he goes off on them, or even even at something less dramatic like the eye roll and the scoff and the pulling it over their nose when you know that as soon as the worker walks away the mask is going back to where it was and and the fatigue of talking to people about it all the time so it's like I can't get mad at the worker for not going to talk to them but I want to be like I want to support them and go talk to them but I find it almost impossible because you're also like putting yourself out there then to receive that reaction from them and it's hard to do.
0: Mhm. Absolutely. And I I think, you know, it's just it's it's all it's everything after a year of doing this, it's everything together, right? Yeah. And it's it's seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, being tired of how 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 much we've been mindful of it of over a whole year. That desperation of course we want things to go back to normal. Yeah. Uh and I think the big takeaway from the conversation around the the COVID fatigue and the overload that we're experiencing is that, like, the, the only way to solve the overload, the fatigue, is to hold on a little bit longer while this vaccine campaign does its work. And then as individuals, to to take whichever vaccine becomes available to us first, and, and when it becomes available to us, and to recognize that despite the differences between them, that They're all going to be as effective, regardless of which one we get, at protecting ourselves, but ultimately building up the protection of our society, which is the big, big thing now. Um, And it's why, like, for me, or for both of us, you know, we're going to be, we are at the back of the line for vaccines.
1: Yeah, we're like, the the earliest estimate is... uh,
0: June, end of June, I believe. Yeah,
1: late spring, early summer. Yeah. Um, For one dose. Yeah, but the vaccine rollout has already been delayed in Canada, so... It, like, yeah, yeah. It,
0: it has really sped up since, and we're, we've passed this sort of golden threshold. We, oh, okay. We're doing over a hundred thousand a day, um, which is a big step. Um, the, the equivalent, for example, for in the United States was was over a million vaccinations a day. They did that three weeks ago or so, I think. So we are a few weeks behind somewhere like the states that can manufacture vaccines domestically. But the we're not we're not so far delayed anymore. We're really starting to see now. We're we're getting into this place where things are going to really start picking up for us That's good um, to know. Mm-hmm. but yeah it's just
1: it's important to get whichever one comes your way mm-hmm. and yeah. and once you get it to continue following the protocols oh, right because yeah. because you may have it if you're if you're 58 and relatively healthy you're gonna get it months and months before a lot of other people and a lot of the people in these frontline minimum wage jobs who don't have benefits who have been suffering this for a year Some of them will get it. Like, I know in Ontario, grocery store workers are in an early group to get it. Well, that's good. At least in some places in Ontario. But here, I I haven't heard really anything about it. So, when you're, if you get it, and so you think, okay, I'm safe, I'm going to be a lot more lax about the mask, Mm -hmm. remember that not everyone is out. Like, people are going to exit this tunnel at different times.
0: Mm -hmm. I think it's a really good point. I think that's a really important thing, is that, yeah... We are not at the point, regardless of whenever you get your vaccine, where we can change our behaviors yet. Exactly. And and we are months away from it. And and if we're and if we all really pull together and keep that in mind, that time might be late June when most Canadians will have gotten one dose, most adult Canadians. Mm Because again, the under eighteen is another conversation. But you know, that if we you know we might be able to achieve that, and we might be able to have something of a normal ish summer. But we can also continue you know we can also sort of give in to our base desire to have things just go back to normal and we can just continue to deal with this drawn out um never-ending sort of pandemic uh and i and i think it's the it's not even the choice that faces us all now it's the ride that we're on and it's the ride we've been on for a year and i think the only difference now is that we, you can see you can see, you know there's a place to get off hopefully in the future
1: Everyone should get their vaccine. Yeah. The long
0: and short of it is, is that like they're all effective and by getting any of them, you are, you're doing your part for the person who can't, who can, who will never be able to get one of these vaccines because of their allergies or their, their comorbidities. Uh, The person who is going to have to wait much, much longer for you to get theirs. And, and ultimately, you know, no matter how you feel about the, no matter how you feel about lockdowns being necessary or not, or whatever, the only way to bring an end to them is is with herd immunity at this point the virus this virus is never going to go away now it's in our it's in the human population it'll it'll be like influenza but we can get back to this normalcy much faster by by really pulling together on this
1: just like the space stuff work (laughs) as a team oh yeah
0: (laughs) but yeah so that that really takes us through today with the topic um so what are we going to talk about for the next one sarah you got any ideas? Anything you want to talk about? I got one. Yeah. <laughs> what's
1: What's your idea, Davis?
0: <laughs> um, we we've been talking a lot about Alberta in this mm-hmm. in this in this podcast more than we did in the first one, and I swear it's not my intention to really have this be an Alberta or Calgary centric podcast.
1: That's where we are. But that's where we live. <laughs> uh,
0: obviously, I think we'll always be sort of Canada centric. But uh, if you're an Albertan, uh, if well, if you're if, if you're an Albertan or a fan of children's movies you might have heard about this one this week uh i would really like us to take a stab at what's going on with the uh the Alberta UCP versus this this Sasquatch movie uh so there's been this film on Netflix about uh i have not watched it myself but uh, uh it's gotten a, it's drawn a lot of controversy here in Alberta because obviously Alberta um we're very dependent on the oil and gas industry and uh, the film is about a oil and gas company in Australia that, tr- uh, not Australia, Alaska, Alaska. <laughs> that tries to access some oil in Alaska using a bomb, and the Sasquatch family that tries to stop them. And this has gotten the attention of the very poorly named UCP war room you can't see the air quotations i'm doing um who has decided to that they are going to they are, they they are petitioning to have this this film this children's movie removed from netflix because they feel it is disparaging to the oil and gas uh industry and as just a little teaser for this story that we hope to do uh i found that as ridiculous as it sounds to try to use a bomb to access oil of course, it's something that Alberta has considered doing in the past, and we'll explore we'll explore the story behind that a little bit. Hopefully, I think maybe in a couple of weeks, but uh, you know, we'll see if something else more interesting comes up. Uh, we'll we'll slip, we'll skip, skip to that instead. Anything 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 to promote this week, Sarah? Anything you want the good Ooh. people to know about?
1: Oh well, funny you mention it. Uh, this week, I actually launched a YouTube channel called Third Sock from the Sun. And it's, I make sock puppet videos, I keep them pretty short, and they're all about science, science-related topics, and science history. Uh, my first topic that I'm exploring is plastic, so if you head over to our, to, to my YouTube channel right now, Third Sock from the Sun, you'll see an intro video and the first of the plastic videos, a What is Plastic? And I'll be releasing new ones there every couple of weeks. You can check me out on YouTube at that name or uh, my website, www thirdsockfromthesun.com
0: Excellent. That is amazing. Well, that takes us to the end of today's show. Please reach out to us on Twitter at TemporaryExpert. That's just one expert, because you can only have so many letters. I'm new to Twitter. I'm, I'm an old, new Twitter user. That's a story for another time. Uh, but send us your feedback, and uh, any and maybe some topics that you'd like to see us cover, things you'd like to talk about, um, And uh, and for all of us here at Temporary Experts, she's Sarah Bannister.
1: He's Davis Leon. And we and
0: have, have been, been your, your temporary, temporary experts.
1: Temporary. Thanks for listening.